Welcome back to the program. We've all heard that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. The notion that men and women are different is deeply inculcated into our culture. Yet today, science and our growing understanding of the human genome and the interaction of culture and genetics has given us a far greater understanding of those differences. But like almost everything else in the realm of modern science, different groups want to interpret the results in different ways. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Sarah Richardson, She's an assistant professor of history, science, and studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University, and the author of the new book, Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome. Sarah Richardson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to have you here. I want to first of all talk about our traditional view of really thinking that the differences were related to X and Y chromosomes, and really before we had the understanding that we have today about some of these genomic differences. Talk about the classic traditional ideas that we had about these differences. Well, in 1902, we discovered the X and Y chromosomes, and it initiated a a new understanding of sex as a binary instantiated at the level of the genome. The X and Y came to be thought of as like little humunculi, um, little male and female figurines in the human genome that were thought to control all aspects of femaleness and maleness. And they lay at the base of a hierarchy of conceptions of sex and gender ranging from uh, hormonal sex, gonadal sex, to brain sex and gender expression and gender identity. Um, But at the heart of it was thought to be, at the base of it, that is, um, the X and Y chromosomes, a kind of fixed, unchangeable um, binary of maleness and femaleness. And, of course, we know today from our general understanding of genomics that it is much more complex than that that it involves a lot more genetics, a lot more genes, and that the whole issue of expression of those genes and its impact from the culture are all part of the equation. Absolutely. So what we know now is that it's not just the X and Y chromosomes that control maleness and femaleness, but instead there are sex-specific and divergent processes all across the genome, across our other 22 chromosomes, known as the autosomes. Um, And in fact, the X and Y chromosomes are involved in all sorts of processes shared by males and females as well. Um, So part of the story that I tell in the book is about the unraveling of the idea of the X and Y as the locus of maleness and femaleness. Talk a little bit about that, how it started to unravel, and how scientists in general, first of all, reacted to this understanding? Well, it's interesting because before the discovery of the X and Y chromosomes, we had a radically different understanding of sex. We did not believe, and by we I mean Western biomedical Uh scientists, did not believe that sex was determined at fertilization. In fact, we didn't believe that maleness and femaleness were a very fixed thing at all. Uh, We thought that the environment and various signals from the mother would determine whether the developing fetus would sway toward maleness or toward femaleness. And so when the X and Y chromosomes were discovered, it took a while 
for geneticists and other biologists to get their heads around this these new kind of symbols of maleness and femaleness. And they were resistant to the idea that there could be such a thing as a sex chromosome because they had such a labile view of maleness and femaleness. Um, and one of the stories I tell in the book, I'm a historian and philosopher of science, so I'm interested in things like scientific terminology. And one of the stories I tell is how the X and Y came to be called the sex chromosomes, which turns out to be a 30-year debate with lots of vitriol among our, some of our most famous geneticists. The other aspect is the way in which cultural bias and cultural influence affects all this, because we now know that the expression of these genes is very much a part of the cultural landscape. That's right. I, I think um, there's several dimensions to this. Uh, first of all, uh, I have a way of thinking about science that uh, looks at science as part of culture, scientists as part of society, and therefore operating within the highly gendered ways in which we interact with each other and organize our world and even in which our language is embedded. And so it's not surprising that metaphors and ways of thinking about gender from our daily lives and from particular historical periods can be seen in the cognitive structure of scientific theories of sex differences in the, in the field of sex chromosome research. Um, for me, one of the most fascinating things about science is its social dimension. And I think the sex chromosomes give us a, an excellent example of how ideas about gender circulated into the science and ideas then derived from the science wafted back out into culture to help support often ideological conceptions of maleness and femaleness. And where does evolutionary biology itself fit into the equation? Ah, well, there are a number of dimensions here. One is that we've learned a lot about how the X and Y chromosome evolved. Um, so all mammalian species have uh, some kind of XY chromosome system, and the X and Y chromosomes evolved from a pair of autosomes. And... Uh, uh, we've learned a lot about the, the structure of the X and Y, how they function, uh, how they've changed over time, and indeed we've learned a lot about the history of the human species through understanding changes in the X and Y chromosome over time. So that's one part of it. Um, uh, we also learn a lot about the X and Y chromosome by comparing with other species, mammalian and non-mammalian, worth noting at this juncture that evolution has produced a lot of different ways to produce maleness and femaleness. So if you're an amphibian or if you're a turtle, uh, temperature during early development might determine maleness and femaleness. Um, in other species, sex changes depending on environmental context in many fish, uh, for example. Uh, X and Y chromosome systems are not the same in every genre of species. Uh, so, for example, in birds, it is the female that has the heterozygous pair, where it's the male who has the homozygous pair. Just as a quick reminder, in humans, uh, females are homozygous, meaning they have two X chromosomes, and males are heterozygous, meaning they have an X and a Y. So evolution teaches us that there are many, many routes to producing a male gamete and a female gamete in a spe sexual species. 
Are we seeing controversy evolve over these new findings where, where different interest groups and different people want to interpret it in different ways? I think that's an accurate reading. Um, we look to science to try to so- settle our most difficult social questions. We look at it as a neutral arbiter. But ultimately, science is right inside of all of that politics. Some of the stories I tell in, in the book are about various readings of the X and Y as showing either the superiority or inferiority of males or females, um, or uh, as entering into gender politics, perhaps through humor, uh, perhaps through um, uh, various anxieties in the face of feminism, the ways in which the scripts of culture take up the X and Y chromosome to talk about the future present and past of maleness and femaleness. What is the cutting edge right now of research into this into these genomic aspects and and where do you think that it is going? What do we still need to know? Well, I think we're at an interesting moment. We are at the advent of a genomic century where we are going to learn so much more about uh, how the genome functions. And at this moment, there are kind of two competing perspectives how to think about sex differences in the genome. One says, well, males and females just have different genomes. As one character who I talk about in the book says, uh, males and females are more different than humans and chimpanzees. They're just like different species. Um, There's another perspective that suggests that maleness and femaleness is um, a distributed and convergent process throughout the genome um, and that there are many pathways to healthy or typical maleness and femaleness. Um, And I actually argue for that vision. I think it's more scientifically accurate. I think there's no problem with complexity. It can be just as interesting and exciting as simplicity. But I also think that as we start this genomic century, we're going to be carving into our toolkit, our database, if you will, some of the ways in which we're going to think for a whole century about human difference. And it's very important that we have an open and frank conversation uh, that doesn't just involve scientists but all sorts of stakeholders about what conception of gender we want. Because we don't want to just reproduce the received conceptions that have been so problematic throughout the 20th century, notions of maleness and femaleness as encoded by testosterone and estrogen Mm -hmm. or pink brains and blue brains. We know that things are more complex than that, and we actually have an opportunity to uh, create a new vision at this moment. Given that complexity, can we in fact define those differences ever? Because the danger, of course, is that everything is true and nothing is true. That even something like former president of your university, of Larry Summers' comments, certainly could be true in certain situations, although not true as a universal. Well, I think that um, we have to be able to have an open and transparent conversation about why we do certain research on human differences. One of the things I talk about in the book is that with these new technologies, these genomic technologies, it's very easy to do a study and find a difference. They're quantitative technologies, um, and you can simply measure differences organ by organ, the liver, the heart, the brain, or disease by disease, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, and publish a paper showing sex differences. Uh, What we have a harder time doing is talking about the meaning and significance of those differences. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, there are actually very few, very low genetic differences between males and females in terms of gene expression, but there's one gene that just jumps off the page. It's called the EXIST gene, X-I-S-T, and it's located on the X chromosome. And this gene is so high, and if you look at a chart, it's just jumping off the chart in, in male and female sex differences. But it turns out when you study it that what this gene does is shut down the second X chromosome in females. In other words, this highly divergent gene is doing something to actually equalize gene expression between males and females, so both males and females have a single active X chromosome. So we need a kind of sophistication, a patience with the data, um, and a kind of openness to surprising results rather than to approach it with the goal of seeking out and finding and pointing out differences alone. Is there a danger or a problem, more than a danger, I suppose, that the complexity of this, is, particularly as you're just describing it, that the complexity transcends our ability to really incorporate it into our cultural discussion of these differences? I mean, a moment ago I said I think complexity is just as interesting as simplicity, although it, it, sadly it often seems that what people want is <laughs> the simple story, right? Um, but actually the, the genome, this is going to happen in every area of study, not just sex. We are learning about how reactive the genome is to its environment, uh, its microbiome, uh, the systems in the human body. And that's not to say that genes are not significant, but we're just at the beginning of understanding how they function. Um, now, I don't want to say, well, it's all complex, so we can't have a clear conversation about this. I do think that good research can happen on sex differences. When we do good research on human sex differences, we understand sex as embedded in a gendered context. We look at the variation within each sex and the convergences and overlap between the sexes, and we think very clearly about what that finding might mean for cultural discussions about sex and gender differences that can often have an ideological dimension and have real harm. Um, and as long as we're having that conversation, which is the goal of my book, Sex Itself, um, then I think that we're, we, can, we can do this research feeling that we're in an ethical space and we're doing the right thing. As we're more open in our discussion of sexual preference and gender differences and what all of that entails, is that in some way helping the research, the fact that there is more openness and transparency in those discussions? I think so. So one of the things I try to document in the book is how a changing public discourse around gender over the last 30 years or so can actually be seen in changing models in the science itself. Um, so if our thesis is right that cultural conceptions of gender at any time are part of the scientific models, well then as those cultural conceptions of gender have changed, as you know, quite significantly over the last century, we should be able to see that in the science and I think we can. A good example of that is the search for the sex-determining gene. It once was the case that scientists glibly associated assumed that the sex-determining gene would be the same thing as the gene on the Y chromosome that initiated testes determination in males. Well, this was a very kind of a master gene model of sex. You'd find one gene and you'd be done. Well, 
that model fell apart in the 90s, and it fell apart not just because of the scientific limitations, but because scientists came to appreciate that a model of sex determination should include ovarian determination as well. And so it means that we have this interlacing complex model of sex um, that is involves many more factors across many chromosomes to produce um, typical uh, reproductive maleness and femaleness. Do scientists that are working in these areas feel the political pressure, the social pressure that goes along with these discussions? I think they do. I had the chance to travel around the world and speak with some of the leading uh, geneticists working on sex. And they're all intensely smart, brilliant people um, who are also wary of the political context of what they do. Now, some of them like to get right out front with that, tell jokes and uh, get written up by, you know, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times and on the Colbert show. Some of them play it. They're good hams. And some of them are quite cautious about it. So they're very aware of the context of their work. Um, they are interested in having uh, good conversations about its meaning. In our current world of science, it is the case that scientists are pressured to publish, to raise funds, uh, to work at such a speed that they often don't have the time to step back and really reflect and uh, situate and contextualize their work. And so that's part of, I think, the job of historians and philosophers of science is to provide a space for those conversations. What about on the individual level? As we all want to find out more genetic information about ourselves, things like 23andMe, and other opportunities people have to find out about their own genetic makeup, how is that going to play into what we've been talking about? Sure. Well, as I said, in general, we're only just learning what, how the genome functions. So a, a common criticism of services like 23andMe, which really call themselves recreational genomics <laughs> more than uh, a, a kind of diagnostic service, but are offering pretty serious tests. I mean, you, you could show up that you have, uh, you know, the APOE4 variant, where, which could, uh, is, gives you 11 times the risk of Alzheimer's. Um, so we're in an interesting moment where lots of data is available, but the meaning and interpretation of those risks is, in, is heavily in flux. Um, and I think that picture certainly applies to the science of sex differences at the genetic level as well. Um, I will say that you can anticipate that we won't be talking about things like hormones so much in a couple of decades. We'll be, we will have redescribed sex differences in terms of, gen, of genes, and that's going to be true in so many areas. In, people like me call this geneticization. Um, and so gene talk is just going to increase, and we're all going to have to be savvy about this shifting moment where everything is being redescribed because what can happen is we can uncritically um, encode uh, our, our previous ideas um, into new science and then we have to do lots of excavating work uh, to see what went wrong. And just as a lot of this information can be used now in medical understanding as you talk about with things like Alzheimer's or various other diseases, it also can be used as we understand it better in our interpersonal relationships and how we learn to interact with each other. I agree. 
Now, it's not that we should look to science to give us the picture, the political picture of the world that we want. Um, but I do think that it can be happily surprising or challenging to engage this, this complex genetics of sex um, with, in, in a way that, comp, that allows the complication of simple views of sex difference. So it turns out that males and females, we share uh, 22 chromosomes and we share a 23rd, the X chromosome. We both have it. The differences between males and females are confined to a few genes on the Y chromosome that are mainly involved in spermatogenesis, sperm production, and testes formation. And that, um, you know, uh, we, our, our differences vary throughout the life course uh, as age and hormones and uh, nutrition and other kinds of reproductive status and other kinds of exposures um, alter the expression of our genes. Um, so that sex differences is not a stable um, or certainly not a simple matter. It also turns out that human beings have a huge variety of routes to uh, the formation of a typical architecture of reproductive maleness or femaleness. There's quite a bit of diversity out there. And so if we engage that with respect to the debates you mentioned, things around the uh, presence of um, transgender individuals in society, uh, debates over gay marriage. This gives us an opportunity to kind of expand our, our perspective and to also push back against sometimes uh, a, a use of, of biological conce conceptions of sex to suggest that things are fixed, they're unchangeable, uh, sex can't be changed with, without threatening some natural and therefore social order, right? And so it does, it opens up a space. For discussion. Sarah Richardson, the book is Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome. Sarah, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 